Um, thank you to Lauren Brown, everybody, for having me and the opportunity to kind of share some, some tips and some themes on the book of Hebrews. Um, so today won't be just like a straight exposition of the text. I'm just going to be looking at some major themes. Um, <clears throat> we'll probably spend a little bit of time in Hebrews 7 or Hebrews 8 in case that's where you want to turn. I'll point out some things along the way. Um, we won't be going really chronologically through the book because we're just going to be doing some of the main themes and interpret, ter- interpretive issues you want to know. Um, really to kind of start, I guess, I would just like to say I'm not sure where everybody here comes from exactly background-wise, and I'm not sure if you've ever been at a crossroads in life. You know, most people go through those when they're trying to pick a particular school they're going to go to, uh, who they're going to marry, what kind of job they want to take. Um, there's nothing like ultimately, as we'll see in the book of Hebrews, there's nothing like the crossroads of Jesus Christ and the demands of exclusivity that are required for following him. The book of Hebrews entails some of the most heavenly doctrine in the entire Bible, and yet it's one of the most grounded, real-life books that you will ever encounter. It tells us something that is counterintuitive to our, our culture and our day, that doctrine, heavenly doctrine, is practical. And in fact, it is that heavenly doctrine that enables God's people. It gives them the lifeblood, the sustenance for authentic Christianity that allows it to weather all of life's storms and trials. Let me tell you a little bit about the audience here, and then I want to give you some of the themes we'll be looking at. Um, hopefully this will be helpful, just as a trajectory to help you kind of as you study the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is an intriguing book, as I said before. We don't know for sure who the author is. Historically, they believe it was probably a sermon preached by the Apostle Paul and then transcribed by Luke. The audience is very diverse. It has experienced believers, some seasoned saints. It has some new converts, and it also has some potential pretenders. It's much like most congregations we find in Christianity today. In a time when Christianity, though, was persecuted by Rome, the Roman Empire, many of these people were considering returning to the safety of Judaism. Because Judaism, unlike Christianity, was a state-sanctioned religion. It was allowable. You could be a Jew, but you could not be a Christian. It was illegal. And so there was a lot of harsh persecution that would come as a result of that. And so they're sitting here contemplating whether they could go back to Judaism. And in light of that context, we find the wonderful book of Hebrews. Now, before I start just listing a bunch of themes, as I mentioned, we won't be going chronologically, let me give you a principle to interpreting the book of Hebrews. This is really the key principle. And if you don't get the the principle of interpretation down, you'll kind of get bogged down from time to time. Uh, I want to remind you of an important genre tool in the book of Hebrews. You know what genre is, right? In biblical genre, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's didactic literature, there are imperatives that command us to do something, exhortations that call us to self-examine and to change. Another important literary tool in the book of Hebrews is known as typology. Hopefully you know what typology is, and if you don't, I'll hopefully explain it to you. Typology is the study of types and their antitypes, of promise and fulfillment. A type is an event, a series of circumstances, an office, a person, a place, 
any aspect of an individual or a nation which finds a parallel and ultimately a fulfillment in the life of our incarnate Lord. In fact, you could argue that even in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, we don't get a complete cover-to-cover biography of these men. We get important historical facts about them, facts about their lives, but it's not exhaustive. It's selective. And it's selective because it gives us a picture. It serves to theologically foreshadow the life of Jesus Christ and prophetically to find culmination in him. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every word written about each one of those historical figures has some hidden little thing about Jesus. It's not that minute. But when you look at the lives of the main players of the Old Testament, you see so many connections to their lives that result in showing us Jesus. And when you come to Hebrews, you can't escape the tremendous genre of typology that's employed by the author. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, he says that Moses was intended in an imperfect, shadowy way to anticipate the position that Jesus would occupy to the people of God. You see, Moses was a servant to the house of God, but Jesus Christ was the son of the house. Chapter 4, we have Sabbath rest. It shows us an imperfect shadow to give and to illustrate the ultimate rest found in Jesus Christ. The people of God led by Joshua to the promised land foreshadow heaven itself, whose city and maker is God. And that's where Jesus takes his people. There's the character of Melchizedek, beginning in chapter five, six, and seven. Melchizedek was a real person in whom we see the perfect coalescence of the kingly and priestly office merging into one individual. If you remember the Old Testament very well, the kingly and priestly offices were totally separate from each other. You couldn't have both. And yet there is one character in the Old Testament who sort of breaks that rule because he points to someone greater who would be both king and priest. Hebrews reminds us that all the Levitical vestments, ceremonies, and sacrifices are woefully inadequate. They never brought a single person to God. They were types, you see. Shadows, pictures, pointing to the reality to come. Their significance was never in themselves. Their significance was only in the thing they typified. What they pictured in a dim, shadowy way, he actualized In chapter 7, he was a consummate priest of a better priesthood. In chapter 8, Jesus is a minister of a better covenant. So he's a better minister, a better covenant, Hebrews 9. He's a better sanctuary, a better temple, a better sacrifice. In chapter 10, his offering is better. And really, we get the consequences of rejecting such a better person a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better temple, a better covenant head. There is unparalleled severity with rejecting one like him. And there's a lot of repetition in the book of Hebrews with these chapters and these themes. They're kind of all interrelated. And it may seem more the same sometimes as you're going through the book. You're like, well, I feel like I've, I've heard that. 
But we have to remember the incomplete preparatory types are shown to be insignificant in comparison to the superior antitype. All that to say, the epistle of Hebrews presents a stark contrast between, again, the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant delivered through Moses and the infinite superiority of the provisions of the new covenant offered by the perfect high priest, our covenant head, God's only son, our Lord Jesus. Among the better provisions that we see of the new covenant, we have that superior hope, a superior testament, a superior promise, a superior homeland, a superior resurrection. And that's really the first tool to get to the book of Hebrews, to understand the main themes is the idea of type and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now let's start to look at the themes. One of the first themes I want to present to you, hopefully it's come out a little bit already, is that Jesus Christ is superior. He is better than everything in the Old Testament. He is superior ultimately because he is the eternal son of God. And Hebrews gives us so many wonderful ways that he is better than life itself. Let me just highlight for you. You're familiar with the three offices of Israel, right? Prophet, priest, and king. What the book of Hebrews does for us is shows us that the first two-thirds of our Bible, the books that you hold hopefully in your hands right now, are not just a relic of ancient history. They are a testimony to a prophetic promise that the three offices of Israel are consummated in our Lord. Remember, those offices were not merely for the moral, civil, and ceremonial functions of Israel in perpetuity and for prosperity. No, They were inaugurated to foreshadow the saving role of Jesus Christ. He's the greater king of 2 Samuel 7, the greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and the greater priest of Psalm 110. And all those texts Hebrews deals with. There's entire chapters developed to each one of these points, and especially to that of his priesthood. We see this as the testimony of the superiority of Christ over the Aaronic Levitical line. You see this in Hebrews 7. It's one of the texts I said to maybe look at. Hebrews 7, look at verse 27 a little bit. What we learn up to this point in chapter 7 is that in verse 19, Aaron was unable to bring the sinner into the presence of God. Quite a startling thing. To recognize that all that they were doing, the Levitical priesthood never could bring a single sinner into the actual presence of God. But Christ has. Multiple times in the book of Hebrews, it reminds us with the unending repetition of the priests of the Old Testament. Hebrews 7, 27, Jesus does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. They had to do this daily and yearly on the Day of Atonement. So in all the details, all the ceremony, all the repetition of the Old Testament priesthood, it tells us one startling thing. It could never get the job done. It never brought people to God. It was weak and it was useless. And it was only there to shadow and to prefigure the substance. Now remember, this isn't an oversight on God's part. It's not like he had, well, plan A, And plan A didn't work out so well, so you had to go with plan B. Not at all. This was always his intention from before the foundation of the world. 
They prefigure a better priest who could get the job done because of his illimitable life and his superior excellencies. That's what we have to ask ourselves. Why is it that Jesus Christ's priesthood is efficacious when none of those other priests ever accomplished anything? I mean, you might be thinking, so Peter, you're telling me that not a single sin, not one priest in all the history of Israel ever efficaciously removed a single sin, even a small sin, a practical sin from the people. Not a single one. And so by these illustrations, the apostle is showing us some key points here underneath this header, so to speak. First, it demonstrates to us that the great high priest of Christianity is far more excellent than the typological high priest of Judaism. And that because of that superior priesthood, the faith of the Hebrew believers under tremendous persecution should be established and their hearts should be drawn out in love and worship to Jesus Christ because he is so much better than life itself. Secondly, it tells us also that of necessity, if God is bringing in a new order of priesthood, then the old order has to be completely set aside. You can't have both Judaism and Jesus Christ. One is authentic and one is obsolete. If the old system is in place, Jesus is illegitimate. But if Jesus is legit, then the old is done away with. Because he was not a priest according to the tribe of Levi. And so if the old system is in order, Jesus can't be a priest. I'll come back to that in a moment. Another thing, a good pastor, a good preacher, which is what the apostle Paul is and the author of Hebrews he doesn't just spend all the time up in heaven, okay? Which he could, and it'd be great, it'd be wonderful. But he brings things down to earth. And that brings us to really the next second thematic element of the book of Hebrews that I want to just draw your attention to. And that's that of the warning passages, the exhortations. I mean, he's concerned that some of his hearers have clocked out on him a little bit. And that local congregation, maybe they become dull of hearing. He said this a hundred times. They may not be getting the spiritual message that he's trying to drive home. And there's always that practical concern, even here today, right? So he has these exhortations, the warning passages. There are six of them in Hebrews. I'll give them to you real quick. I'll make some comments. There's the warning against drifting away from the things that we have heard, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. The second warning is against disbelieving the voice of God. That's Hebrews 3, 7 to 14. There's the warning that against resisting the elementary principles of Christ. That's Hebrews 5, 11 to 20, or 6 to 20. 5, 11 to 6, 20. There's the warning against despising the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. There's a warning against devaluing the grace of God. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. And then one more, the warning against turning away from him who speaks. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. And in all of these warnings, they actually get progressively more and more severe. The more revelation he gives, the more severe the warnings get. He's saying, ultimately, the first theme is true. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, all the things they held dear to connect them to God. He's the best and only possible savior. And when you get 
interrupted with these warnings, what he's saying is, if that is who Jesus is, and you turn your back on him, what are the consequences? He says the consequences are damning. The consequences are inescapably permanent. Because if if you turn your back on Jesus, who is the only Savior, then there is no sacrifice that remains for your sins and no hope of salvation. I want to remind you again, he's writing to Jewish Christians. Some of these Jewish Christians, again, being tempted to go back to their old religion, to go back to a form of Judaism, to underestimate the importance of Jesus Christ and their relationship to God. They probably thought in their heart, well, I can still believe in God in my heart. No one can take that from me, but I can go and just be a part of Judaism externally. Can't do it. They're attempting to retain fellowship with God somehow, but somehow to exclude Jesus Christ from the process because his name brings so much hostility. You see, there's a danger of repudiating Jesus Christ in the heart, of being a false convert and walking away from Christianity with a finality. Now, a lot of times we come to the warning passages and a lot of times people come to them and they worry about, well, can I lose my salvation? Let me just say at the very beginning, that's not what these texts are about at all. So many times we mistakenly ask questions from a text that it isn't even intended to answer. And from those wrong questions, we draw wrong conclusions and we find ourselves in a whole world of peril. Whether a Christian can lose their salvation or not is not the question the author is raising at all. Rather, he is presenting the reality that unbelievers can be so cut off from the benefits of salvation that it becomes utterly impossible for them to be saved. So the question is not, can believers lose salvation, but can unbelievers who are in the congregation, pretenders, maybe even self-deceived people who are sitting among the people right then and right that, right that, right then and there, they can be forever cut off, being so calloused by the external benefits of redeemed people all around them that these pretenders can be so hardened that God cuts them off. I mean, they've been privileged, like many of us, to see liars forsake lying, drunkards forsake drinking, homosexuals forsake homosexuality, prostitutes forsake prostitution, They've seen some tremendous, authentic conversions in the lives of the people around them. And yet seeing all this, a self-deceived pretender can forsake Christ in such a comprehensive way in their heart that it said they cannot be renewed to repentance. And he's not just hurling insults to people who aren't in the congregation. He's talking about a reality among people who go to church every Sunday. Think about this. Many of the people in this congregation saw the body of the Son of God in human flesh. I mean, they heard his voice with their own ears. They listened to the sermons of Jesus. They saw miracles performed by him and the apostles. And you know what? Maybe even them themselves were healed. Hebrews 6 is one of those startling passages that tells us they certainly in an unimaginable way, tasted of the heavenly gifts. 
sharers of the Holy Spirit, tasters of the word of God. The son of God had broken into their darkness. It shows it through all these wonderful privileges. And think about the privileges and blessings that they had in those early days of Jesus Christ. But we can't just think about them. We have to think about the wonderful privileges that each one of us have here right now. You probably came to church without a lot of trouble today. You have a completed canon sitting in your native language right now, probably in your hands. And so the warnings are telling us something about the harshness of condemnation, as our text is warning, is in proportion to the scale of gospel privilege that has been rejected. That should really cause us to pay some serious attention to the book of Hebrews. These passages, they force us to do the hard work of self-evaluation. I mean, you can't come to a topic like this and be detached, right? It forces you to think about your ultimate commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this isn't just a phantom warning. What he's talking about here is he's talking about someone who's made what looks like a credible outward profession of faith in Christ. And he at some point down the line in their heart has turned their back on him and God has cut them off. This is a person who has outwardly professed Christ. His profession looks very similar to the other people in the congregation. And yet, again, they're not connected to the vine. And so, of course, this warning reminds us that there is such a thing as a false profession. There is such a thing as claiming to be a believer and yet not being a believer. So it's vital for us to recognize that distinction and the consequences that come from it. For many of us, those passages are a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit unsettling. You know, posse isn't a general topic that you talk about with lighthearted discussion. It's not the sort of thing that you, you know, bring up with the in-laws over dinner. Maybe you do, I don't know. They don't oftentimes talk about it in many church gatherings. It's not the theme of Christmas choir events or conferences. In modern times, I don't think I found a single book, and I could be wrong, but I haven't found one that has apostasy in the title since my friend John Owen. That's a long time. 2 Peter 1.10, we see a similar exhortation. Therefore, my brother, be all the more diligent to be certain about his calling and choosing of you. And that's what Hebrews is telling us about with that theme. The next thing I want to look at real quick, another theme, I've got to go back to what I mentioned earlier about the priesthood of Jesus. You can look at Hebrews 8. Um, I'll be just spending a little bit of time there in Hebrews 8. Uh, it's a long way to go in the book. <laughs> you got seven chapters, and you get to this point in Hebrews 8, verse 1. And if you look at the very first verse, it says, now the main point, most translations say. And, you know, the English doesn't carry over the Greek from the first verse there. The point is not merely, well, this is a summary of everything that's been said previously about the ministry of Jesus. You may think that sometimes when you see the word, now the main point of what we've been saying is this, and there's a summary. That's not really what it is. It's not a summary, but it is an apex. It is the tip, the peak, the finishing nail, the summit. Owen said, this is the crowning affirmation. This is it. This is speaking of the exaltation of the office of Christ as high priest. He is a heavenly king priest. What Melchizedek was a type of, what he pointed forward to, what the Levitical priests were types of, David was a type of, he is the substance. He's the high priest, the true priest, the true minister. They were all just types and shadows of him. And when I use the word true, I don't mean that the other priests were false, okay? Don't get me wrong. Again, I mean that they were types and he's the substance. Think of the language of Jesus in the gospel of John. He says, I am the true vine. 
Israel was the vine in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the true vine. Here he points how Israel was pointing forward to him. Not that Israel wasn't real or that Israel wasn't important or isn't important. He's saying they pointed to him. Another example, when Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. He is not saying the bread from heaven that God gave Israel in the wilderness was fake bread. God gave them real bread at that time to feed them, to keep them alive. But that bread was pointing forward to him. He's the true bread who feeds his people forever, giving them eternal life. And so likewise, the old priests went to God for a time. They were types and shadows pointing forward to him. He's the true high priest and he's in an exalted office. And it's precisely his exalted king high priest office. And I wanna show you some things about that. It tells us a couple of things. One, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have some tremendous truths about the priest in the beginning of book or chapter eight. We get something about his location and something about his posture. I wanna tell you a bit about those. His posture is tremendously telling. Well, I wanna stop and just think about that. The Levitical priests never sat down. There was all this furniture inside the temple for the priests to do their work, right? It's recorded for us in marvelous detail in the Old Testament. And there's one thing that's glaringly absent. There were no seats. There was nowhere to sit. There was no couch, no seat, no counter to lean on, no chair, no bench, no stool, nothing at all. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time, the same sacrifices. Did you notice that? He stands daily. Day after day, he stands. Inside the sanctuary, while he's on the clock, he couldn't sit. You know why? Because his work was never done. It was never finished. It was never done because it was just anticipatory, you see. I mean, think of the futility of that. Day after day, Week after week, year after year, never allowed to sit as a constant reminder for the people that what he was doing accomplished nothing. Futility, ineffective, vanity, nothing was accomplished in reality. And what does Hebrews 8 tell us about the posture of our Lord at the right hand of the Father? He's seated. And why is he seated? Because his atoning work was done once for all time. He cried aloud that cry of dereliction on the cross. John 19, 30. It is finished. Atonement complete. And he sat down when his work was done. Shows us his permanent efficacy. It was a one time priestly offering made at the cross. He does what no one else has ever done as a priest. He sits down. We also see that the king priest, we see an established thing there too as well. According to the Melchizedekian order, he sat at the right hand. That's, that's significant. It speaks to an exaltation of a king. The right hand is the place for the king to sit. The Lord, it's, it's showing that royal power, his sovereign rule and authority drawn from Psalm 110, which is quoted many times throughout Hebrews. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We look at all this, we're reminded that Jesus was a humiliated high priest during his ministry on earth, wasn't he? 
He was a man who suffered in ministry. He was mistreated in ministry. If you ever had a bad ministry experience, you can relate to that, right? You try to share the gospel, you get mocked at, maybe spit on, mistreated, I don't know. Well, he had that to the nth degree. He was crucified for our sins as a ministry. His entire earthly ministry up to that point, his entire work on the cross is showing us that he did this in humility to serve poor, helpless sinners like us. Service of humility. And now he's risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. Now he is exalted. He's at the right hand of God. He is now serving in an exalted heavenly intercession. He's a high priest who has sovereign power and authority. I just want you to get a taste of that. Hebrews connects this to us. The sitting down, it's, again, more than just his sovereign rule. It's all these wonderful things. Hebrews 1, 3, after he made purification of sins, he sat down. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. After his atoning work was complete, he sat down. If you're still in chapter 8, look at verse 3. We see a contrast there. There's a, a quantity and a frequency contrast there that we've got to point out. For every high priest, this is Hebrews 8, verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Theirs is described as plural gifts and sacrifices. Plural gifts, plural sacrifices. A multiplicity of gifts and sacrifices. There is an unending stream of blood from the multitude of animals butchered in the daily and yearly sacrifices that scroll through the pages of Israel's barbaric history. The blood just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. They brought sacrifices and offerings over and over and over and over again. Because it was a type. They could not remit sin. They could only point to the one who can remit sin, Jesus Christ. So the atoning work of Christ is paralleled with this. It's contrasted. It's limited to a one-time thing. You may be wondering, how do I see that? Well, there in that text, Hebrews 8, verse 3, we see what's called an indefinite pronoun, something. It's a singular thing for Jesus. There's in the plural, his is in the singular. He has a one thing to offer. One sacrificial offering contrasted with the many gifts and sacrifices. Also notice the frequency. It makes that clear. Beginning of verse 3, it says, for every high priest is appointed to offer. And then you look at the end of the verse, it says, so it is necessary that this high priest have something to offer. See that to offer there? Seems the same to us when we look at it. It sounds the same. But once again, the original text is a little bit more helpful. The first use, speaking of the old covenant priests, is in the present infinitive. That's something that stresses ongoing action. It's in the present tense. It's today and today. It's right now. It's right now and right here. There's no escaping the present tense. It goes on and on and on. It's always there. And what's stressed with the first use there is the old covenant priests have to continually offer again and again and again, unending. But the second use of the word, to offer, tied to our new covenant head, Jesus Christ is in a different construction. It's not shown in English there. It's not a present infinitive, but it is an aorist, stressing snapshot action. It took place, definitive event. He offered himself a sacrifice on the cross, a one-time thing. 
Hopefully you see that contrast there. He's sitting down, atonement made, complete. Another thing I want to mention, I'll try to do these last two quick. He can do this because of what we call dual mediation. This is the fact that he is both God and man. And I want to come back to our final theme to show you why that's important as well. But let me tease this out for you. Many times throughout the book of Hebrews, he is referred to as both God and man. There are many references to him being the eternal son of God. It's a wonderful testimony. But he's, he's the son of God. We see that in Hebrews 1 verse 3. We'll look at that in our next time. If you look at Hebrews seven sixteen, it says, Who became a priest, not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. He was a priest, not by natural laws that required him to be of the tribe of Levi, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. But on the basis of an indestructible life. Friends, his human life was indestructible. They killed him. We just looked at that. He died. He breathed his last. The indestructible life that qualifies him is his deity. He is preeminently qualified because he is divine. The Father swears an oath to him before the foundation of the world. That's Hebrews 7.21. He had to be God to forgive sins. Mark 2.7. Who is able to forgive sins except God alone? And yet, he had to be a man to die and pay man's penalty. Because God can't die. So in this text, we have this wonderful testimony to the dual mediation of Jesus Christ. I keep saying that. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus was a mediator according to both natures. A mediator has to have something in communion with both parties. Between whoever he's going to mediate, right? He can't be a mediator and connected to one and separated from the other. If he doesn't have the self-same nature as the Father, then he is not a mediator. He's separated. If he doesn't have the self-same nature as us, he can't be a mediator. He's separated. 1 Timothy 1.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Mediator is a personal title. According to the divine nature, the second person of the Godhead mediates God to us. According to the human nature, the second person of the Godhead mediates us to God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Hebrews 1.3, he's the exact radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. We cannot understand God as he is. He has to be mediated to us. Jesus is the mediator according to his divine nature. He brings God down to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But he must also take us up to God. He had to be the son of man, consubstantial with us according to his humanity. Same flesh, Hebrews 2.14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise had to partake of the same. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus never died. Remember, that's vital for him being both simultaneously priest and sacrifice. He died a death that couldn't hold him. He died a death followed by resurrection. And why? Well, for two reasons. One signifies the purity that God vindicated him. He died a death that was never due to him. But it's not just that. Jesus raised himself from the dead. That indestructible life is a reference to the fact that he is the divine son of God. John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it back up again. Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. 
And he did. He was our priest, primarily according to his humanity, right? Because deity can't suffer and die. That's why scripture oftentimes attributes so much of what he did as a person to his humanity, the sacrifice he makes according to his humanity. It says it's according to his body, 1 Peter 2.24, his blood, Colossians 1.20, his soul, Matthew 20, 28. But it's his deity that renders that oblation effectual, Romans 8, 3. And that's why we see in texts like Hebrews 9, 14, he is represented as both offerer and offering who accomplishes his priestly work through the eternal spirit. Our great high priest must not only be God and man, but he must act as God and man according to the work of redemption. One person acts by means of both natures, each nature doing what is appropriate to its nature. Let me make that more clear. The most common example given in the early church, the medieval church, is to illustrate this, was the healing of the leper. That's Matthew 8, verse 3, and Matthew 11, verse 5. It's the human nature of Christ, his body, his soul, that walks, that puts forth a hand, that touches the leper, a leper that physically speaks to him. The divine nature doesn't do that, it doesn't have a body. His human nature as such doesn't heal the leper, nor can it. It's not like he has a supernatural body, you know, some kind of you know, supernatural body. It's by his divine nature, though, that he heals the leper. And yet, Christ doesn't heal the leper by divine nature alone. Christ's person, he is one person, works by both natures according to what is appropriate to both natures, yet one work. So we see perfectly wed the dual mediation of Jesus Christ. Springing from both his divine will and human will, it terminates in one completed act, the healing of the leper. Yet Christ's two natures are not mixed, they're not confused. Calvin uses the illustration of eyes. We have two eyes, yet one vision. So Jesus has two natures, yet one mediation of the one person according to each nature. And the author of Hebrews explained to us how Jesus Christ is the priest that we desperately need. The one designed by God is the best and only and last priest that we could ever hope for. And it's stressing this for us. It's telling us the fact of what is seen in uh, early church father Gregory of Nazianzus said this, for that which is not assumed is not healed. Jesus had to be a true human to represent us. He had to have every property of humanity to redeem those properties in us. He had to have a real human body, a real human intellect, a real human will, a real human emotions. All the things that make a man a man needed to characterize our high priest. And he makes him a more suitable mediator. And here's a startling reality. God as God cannot mediate or sympathize with you. I wonder if you ever stopped to think about that. It brings us to our last theme, the last point I want to make. It'll be short. That of his priestly intercession, it's one of sympathy. Sympathy. Hebrews 2 and 4.15 are two texts that tell us about that and sprinkled throughout the whole book. Hebrews 4.15, let me read it. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This should answer any lingering questions that you should have regarding the sympathy of Jesus Christ. You may think, well, now that he's in heaven, seeing his rightful place with the Father, is he altogether done with our plight? Can he still understand our dilemma, 
our infirmities, our physical and emotional weaknesses. I mean, now that he's entered into the heavenly abode, has he forgotten us? I mean, we feel that way sometimes, don't we? When the world shakes you to the core, tests your faith beyond what you think or even your limits, you just wonder, does Jesus remember me? Well, I have an encouragement for you. From our text, we learn our man is in heaven. And he is capable of unparalleled and uh, undiminished understanding and sympathy. And why is that the case? Because of his own experiences as a man. Because he was an authentic man. He has sympathy and compassion beyond compare. He was truly man. He didn't just appear as a man. He was just as human as you and I are here today. He was a, a real human. He had real flesh and blood. You know, he had real hunger. He had real struggles with being tired. He had a real human mind, real human emotions. He had all the inherent limitations and weaknesses that we have, apart from one thing, sin. Yes, he was fully divine. When he took on human flesh, he didn't surrender to deity. He didn't cease to be divine. No, not at all. He had to be divine, right? Yet, for example, the eternal God in human flesh had to learn. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to walk and to talk and to read and to spell and to write. He had to learn all the appropriate customs of his day. He had to learn the law of God as a man, how to put on clothes, what what he could eat, what he couldn't eat, as I said before. He had to learn everything humans have to learn. He had to experience everything humans have to experience except sin. Christ's humanity is just like ours, apart from any sin. And he took that humanity to heaven. So he can resonate. He can sympathize with us and our weaknesses. And he sympathizes with us because of all the testing he went through, our man is in heaven. Every Christian agrees Jesus never sinned. Our text, Hebrews 4.15, says he's without sin. He's holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's Hebrews 7.26. He's without blemish, Hebrews 9.14. He committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. 2, 2, in him is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. No one can convict him of sin, John 8, 46. He always did what was pleasing to the Father, John 8, 29. He had to be like us to sympathize with us and to overcome. We have an overcoming man in heaven. Let me just make this last thing real practical before we leave. You know why we don't always pray as quickly and often as we should? maybe sometimes even at all, when things get really hard? You wonder why there are spiritual lapses in your prayer life? Why there are maybe more lows than highs these days in spiritual growth? Because deep down inside, we don't believe it'll work. When you fail in your sin, you don't need a list of 20 things to do, okay? You need the grace of God through Jesus Christ, our man in heaven. And through prayer and supplication to the Father, through our high priest, our efficacious high priest, we have sympathy. And friends, if you aren't satisfied with that, it's because you've never really experienced it. That's that danger again of just dying in the wilderness when there's water right there. He who drinks from me will never thirst again. So you kind of got to ask yourself right now, is Jesus your high priest? You need a high priest. But if your priest is anyone other than Jesus Christ, I promise you, you will die in your sins. 
There's no priest that can bridge the gap. No man on earth, aside from our man, who can get us to heaven. No one but Jesus can. And all other attempts prove to be miserably inadequate. So as you go through life's trials, as you're reading through this book, you need someone who can deeply uh, resonate with you, who's deeply invested in you, who's so deeply moved with sympathy for you that he stands with outstretched arms, unceasingly pleading to the Father for you. And that's the picture of the sympathy of Jesus Christ, our man in heaven. You need Jesus to, to intercede for you. And guess what? He lives forever to intercede. That's what he's doing right now. And that should comfort our trying hearts. I'll close with this. There's a hymn I like by Joseph Hart called A Man There Is. I'll read it. A man there is, a real man, with wounds still gaping wide, from which rich streams of blood once ran in hands and feet inside. Tis no wild fancy of our brains, no metaphor we speak. The same dear man in heaven now reigns that suffered for our sake. This wondrous man of whom we tell is true almighty God. He bought our souls from death and hell, the price his own heart's blood. That human heart he still retains, though, thorn, though throned in heavenly bliss, and feels each tempted member's pains. For our afflictions are his. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. I thank you for just our opportunity to take a quick look at the overview of the book of Hebrews for these women. I pray you'd be with them uh, in their time of study, the weeks between, that you would just help impress the wonderful truths of this book, the heavenly doctrines of this book, and, and make it just enrich their prayer life, help it inform how they live, give them comfort and trials. And Lord, allow them to persevere through this book and, and just gain all the rich reward you have stored up for them in this study. In the name of Christ, our high priest, we pray. Amen.